Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. The information in this podcast is provided for education and research information only. It is not a substitute for professional health advice. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Welcome everyone, I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And today we've got paediatrician Dr. Golly on with us, sharing his wisdom. Dr. Golly is a paediatrician and father of three. Paediatrician and father of three, Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, better known as Dr. Golly, appreciates we all need sleep to thrive. In the first online sleep program developed by a paediatrician, the Dr. Golly Sleep Program is designed to equip parents with the skills required to have their babies reliably sleeping through the night. Suitable for newborns through to preschoolers, there is an age-specific program to fit every family. Dr. Golly has also released a new book, Your Baby Doesn't Come With a Book, which is an essential guide to the first four weeks of a baby's life. Out now online and in store with all major booksellers. Dr. Golly is here with us today. He's found some time and so we're very appreciative. Welcome. Shall we call, you, shall we call you Daniel or Dr. Golly? Oh, you can call me either. I, I like Dr. Golly. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem in pediatrics when your patients can't pronounce your surname. So oh, I had trouble. Know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the third take. What, what you don't know is that that was the third take. I'm really good with names. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I get my patients to call me Dr. Pat. I like it. Yeah. Everyone yeah, calls Pat Dr. Nice. Pat. Yeah. 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 When he asks his family to call him Dr. Pat, then that's sort of stretching it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when your kids sometimes say to you, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Perfect. I always go, that's Dr. Perfect to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think, I know we've got, we've got tons to talk about today um, and we're really excited to have you on. Um, I thought we might, I, th- I know our listeners would be really keen to hear from pediatrician about the sort of point in their care when a paediatrician might first be involved. And I was going to say that the first time would be at the birth, but then I thought there's actually some occasions when we get you guys to see our patients before the baby's even arrived, isn't there? And the the one that I thought of was expectation of significant prematurity. That's exactly right. So often um, I'll be called upon by an obstetric colleague to go and visit someone who might be, you might, for example, bring someone onto the ward um, because they, uh, they're due to deliver. And we, you know, obviously try and delay that as late as possible. And that's a good opportunity because I think it's the, the best time to learn something is prior to going through it Absolutely. whenever possible. Um, that's sort of the the message that we've tried to convey with the book, for example. Don't read it when you are in the trenches, when you are sleep-deprived and, and struggling. Read it beforehand. Mm. Got much better opportunity to take it in, to process it, to ask good questions, 
um, follow-up questions, etc. So there are times where I'll, when I'll see someone um, every day for sometimes three weeks. Uh, as you know, you might sit on the on the postnatal ward waiting, 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 um, and that's a really good opportunity. But probably the most common time where I would meet someone would be um, if it's, for example, a cesarean section just before baby arrives, um, or in the case of a, a vaginal birth, uncomplicated, it might be um, a few hours later. Absolutely. And is that the case that everybody sees a paediatrician at birth? No. Um, it, it, it It's changed a bit. Um, it used to be that, you know, I remember my, my um, parents are South African and I was born in Australia, but when they... They had two sons in South Africa, then moved to Australia and had me. And the practice in South Africa is that everyone has a paediatrician, very similar to what happens in the US. Mm. And when my mum always tells me when she asked her obstetrician, um, which paediatrician should I see? His response was, are you planning on having a sick baby? Yeah. <laughs> it's so foreign. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's the way it used to be in Australia. You didn't need a paediatrician unless you needed a paediatrician. Mm. And, and GPs did the bulk of, of newborn checks and, and newborn work and unsettled babies, et cetera. Um, you know, GPs would brace babies for hip dysplasia and all of the above. Um, there's been a significant shift in recent years where more and more people are engaging with paediatricians, um, even in the absence of a discernible problem, just because they want, um, you know, they want that level of, of input, opinion. Uh, it's a very personal choice, but then there are unfortunately some instances when you just have to mm. uh, in a setting, for example, of a, of a difficult delivery or a, or a flat baby at birth. Mm. And why is it that a paediatrician, it's sort of um, mandatory or I'm not sure it's mandatory, but a paediatrician arrives at the cesarean birth. Um, if you're the process of a vaginal birth, as as you know, Dr. Pat, um, it's quite stressful on a baby. So it really stimulates them. And the vast majority of the time, a baby born vaginally will come out so um squashed and prodded and squeezed mm. that they come out and, and they, you know, they're well and truly uh, awake and screaming and breathing. And furious. And, <laughs> and furious, exactly. Yeah. Why did you wake me up? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The if you're talking about, for example, an elective caesarean, um, that baby's gone from being happy and sleeping one moment to all of a sudden uh, a freezing cold light room and boom, they're born. So very, very, um, I wouldn't say very often, but um, far more commonly babies will, will be born at a Caesar and need a bit of waking up. And mm. that's why we are there. And what about assisted births? Are, you know, for um, forceps or, or Vontus or something like that, are you also present? Yeah, that's that's the discretion of the obstetrician and the midwives looking after that, that mum during labour. Um, it also depends on the uh, access to paediatric care. Mm. Um, you know, I, for example, live about six minutes drive without traffic from where I work. And so the team know that if they need me, I can get there very quickly. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, th there, there are two types of phone calls I get. There's the mm. one that says mosey on in and there's one that says challenge the orange traffic line. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. need you immediately. Yeah. That's right. We we live at the back fence of the hospital. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we, we live on the next street, but we've got a little a little gate in our back fence that takes us straight into the hospital. Yeah, yeah. It's perfect. Um, 
just near the door that where the stairs are to labor wars. So it's, I can get Very there. Handy. I can beat your six minutes. I can do about <laughs> one minute at night time. And even as an obstetrician, like you don't run that often, do you? Well, no. I mean, I think there's a bit of a difference. Um, and I'm and I'm sure um, Dr. Golly would agree. Work work in on call work in the public sector often involves um, an evolving clinical situation that's been looked after by other people. And mm. suddenly they realise that they need you. Whereas mm. in the private sector where it's been me that's been looking after a patient all along, I would like to think I can pick the need for things from a fair way off. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I always complain that I'm the lowest in the pecking order. <laughs> <laughs> the anaesthetist never runs in because... There's no show without him. (laughs) Exactly. Nothing happens without them. And the obstetrician, well, nothing happens without them either. But if the obstetrician and the anaesthetist are there, they'll just start. Mm. And people are calling me saying, drive faster. Yeah, yeah. Hurry, hurry. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, I know we're laughing about this um, because it's experience. And and I always like to say to our listeners that, um, it is is like a well-oiled machine, isn't it? You know, That's even right. though people have said, hurry, hurry, it's still a well-oiled machine, even though that, that might be a stressful situation for the patient. Yeah, and, and that is, that, that's a really, really good point you raise. Um, you know, there are, there, I've got obstetric colleagues with whom I work and even in the most stressful, clinically um, demanding situations, we will still smile and we will mm. still hug and, and make jokes and, and be calm. And, and I think part of that is because we are comfortable doing that, but also part of it is perhaps subconsciously trying to just calm the room. Mm. And, you know, as you know, um, if you are worried about a clinical outcome, um, you want to try to minimise the worry that you that, that patient imbibes. Mm, exactly. And so at a caesarean birth or any birth that you've attended, do you then visit that patient in hospital after like day one, day two? Yeah. So what I try to do in my practice is visit um, on a daily basis, mm. uh, take calls day and night for, for that baby. Um, I think some parents often don't uh, or, or underestimate and not aware of the um, amount of involvement that we have. So we are monitoring things from jaundice to feeding, weight loss, weight gain, um, rashes, nappy output, wheeze, poos, we're, we're across it all, mm. um, investigations that need to be done, et cetera. Um, but what I try to do um, if I'm around is visit every day, um, address any questions, teach parents how to swaddle, um, teach parents how to handle. Often just the way that I examine a baby shows mm. parents that you don't have to you know, you're not you're not dealing with a a live grenade. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, in handling, and, <laughs> you, like, you can tell the babies. first timers, can't you? Did it? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I try to tell them, um, you know, if you saw what this baby did to get into this world, mm. you know, they've been through a hell of a lot worse than what you can do applying <laughs> yeah. a nappy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think people are still shocked. Sometimes, occasionally, I'll do the odd six week check myself, and I'll. Uh, undress baby pretty fast and put them through their paces and you can still see the first time was going really <laughs> is that is that okay <laughs> is that safe what's he doing you know and and uh you know that's i think this and then probably the third time is you know they're just totally cool with everything <laughs> they're yeah. on their phone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no that is not right do you um do you is it common do you think in in pediatrics in in 
um, Australia in 2023 that that you see healthy babies for six-week check? Yes, the vast majority of babies I see are healthy, which is great because it allows me to quickly move on to uh, other important things. So, um, you know, a lot of the time um, parents express their surprise, like they'll leave a consult with me and say, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And what they're referring to is that, as you know, you can examine a baby, you know, very quickly, you know, within a couple of minutes, you've got all your information, you've checked the everything from the skin to the hips, the eyes, the head shape, you've done it all, you've, you know, fixed any problems that might be there. Um, I'll then spend half an hour talking about uh, their sleep and how the parents are adjusting and whether or not they've established a routine, do they want a routine? And I, I like to really delve into that nitty gritty because I think um, once you've got, or, or even in the setting of a baby who has a problem that you need to deal with, it, it should never be underestimated how important parental adjustment is, how mm. important sleep is. Yeah. And and that's why it's an enormous part of my practice. Um, I know a lot of pediatricians don't go there. I know certainly when, when I was uh, a new parent, um, the pediatrician that we saw just pretty much said everything's good, nothing's mm. wrong. And, you know, we said, but she's not sleeping and she's mm. every hour. And it was just met with a bit of a shoulder shrug mm. and, you know, it'll Fortier, pass. Child health <laughs> maternal nurse. Yeah. yeah. Really, really hard to swallow that as a, mm. as a parent of an unsettled baby. Mm. Um, and so I try, I guess, based on my own lived experience, I try to, to, to really, um, to really put a lot of focus of, of my attention once you've dealt with, uh, made sure you're not missing anything sinister to then focus on on the normal and, and just what that baby's capable of. And we want to talk about the normal because they are big challenges, as you said, to parents, and it can really change your whole experience of being a parent. But before we get on to that, can you just, like, if we gave our listeners just a few red flags as a pediatrician that you might want them to know as to if in the first, say, six weeks they see any of these red flags, it's a good... Um, reason to come and see a paediatrician. You're listening to The Kick with Dr. Pat and Bridget. How many times have you Googled something about your pregnancy? When I was pregnant all the time, Dr. Pat. (laughs) We get it. You may be confused or overwhelmed. It's normal to want information, but where's the reliable stuff from experts? Yeah. Now, if you like our podcast... Dr. Pat and I have developed an online program to help guide you through whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. It's taken us literally two years to put it together. Two long, hard years, wasn't it? (laughs) But, you know, it is a game changer in how pregnancy information is given. Now, how it works is uh, you get to sign up at whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. Like, so you could be pre-pregnant in your very early stages of pregnancy, late pregnancy, preparing for birth, or maybe you've just brought your baby home and you get lots of information around that. And then you also get to join our closed Facebook group. We've called in all our contacts too. So we've got a dietitian, an anaesthetist, physiotherapist. Sonographer. Yeah, who else? A paediatric nurse, obstetrician, mother of four. Oh, just all the people you need to hear from. So if that's you... Come and join us at www.growmybaby.com.au. Uh, I think the the big red flags would be um, focus in the first few days after getting home on feeding. Mm. Uh, 
you know, I had a conversation with a patient this morning, a patient's parents this morning, and they said, um, how do we know if we need to come in because of the jaundice? Well, you don't come in because of the jaundice. You come in because jaundice causes lethargy, and lethargy means that baby's not feeding. Mm. So you come in because the baby's not feeding. It's our job to then determine why. You know, are they, are they brewing an infection? Do they have jaundice or whatever the reason may be? So a, a big focus is on uh, feeding. Uh, being alert, responsive, um, and that's really what I urge parents to look at. The other things are a little bit more um, obscure, things like the colour of the poo. Mm. So after the meconium has passed, the dark, um, almost black-coloured early mm. poo passes within a couple of days. Um, we don't want to see the colours black, red, or white. That's what I tell parents. Mm. Um, but I, I think, I think parents these days are exceptionally good at um, raising concerns. Mm. I think we've got, you know, our system is not, I don't know that there is such thing as a perfect system, but we're lucky in Australia, um, parts of Australia, we have maternal child healthcare nurses um, that do very early visits and, you know, you can, they can identify problems very early, mm. uh, especially with weight gain, a term that we use failure to thrive or growth failure where babies are not putting on adequate weight um, but I really, you know, it, to answer your question more succinctly, I tell parents um, if there's an issue with feeding or if you are worried in any way, get in touch. Mm. That's what Pat says about um, people going into labour. If you're worried it, it, at about anything, then just get in touch. Like hopefully yeah. people and, and have got access. I mm. Yeah, I want mm. them to pick up the phone because if there's something, you know, if I can have a 30-second phone call with someone and completely allay their fears and give mm. them an anxiety-free weekend, mm. it's a pleasure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting because the, the same patient probably worries that they're bothering you. Um, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But exactly. but in fact, um, well, so often as doctors, if someone says, I didn't want to bother you, and then you get a call three days later when the problem's much worse, yes. up in our brain we're thinking it would have been better if you'd called me yeah. three days ago. You bothered me. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I think I think people are generally very um, respectful of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now I want to talk about your book. Um, I love the title. Your baby doesn't come with a book because, a, man, how many times do we say this? <laughs> it's a very good title. It cuts straight to the yeah, issue yeah, yeah. of um, of. Uh, you know, it's it's not just a change in your life; it's a complete game changer. Yeah, but, that's right. Um, and. Uh, I was talking to some people this morning whose baby's due in about two weeks, and I said, "Are you? Are you?" They didn't look that excited, and I said, "Are you excited?" And they're like, "Oh, and they're like we are so excited!" But yeah. they said, it, "The weird thing is that it just feels really strange that we don't have a baby now, and we're gonna have one in two weeks." Yes, and they're just on the precipice of all of that change. And oh, they, I need the book. Yeah, <laughs> I still need your book. Yeah. So the book is really for um, babies that are zero to four weeks, and and. That's good too because I remember thinking, well, what do I do now? Because most people say that routines or your baby doesn't settle in until about sort of six weeks. But zero to six weeks for a new parent is a lifetime. Yes. It really is. And you think, okay, I've brought this baby home and and now what? And I think your book really does cover that. And the other thing that I really love about your book is that you really show how a dad or partner can be as involved as the birthing mother um, and, you know, basically make the point that the only thing that the partner can't do is breastfeed. 
and we know yeah. that, but they can yeah. do absolutely everything else. And I love that inclusivity. And actually, I do see that in this newer generation. Like Patton, uh, we've got four boys and our last boy is 10. And we see that in our nieces and nephews that are now having babies. The dad is just so involved. And I'm not saying you weren't, Pat, but you weren't. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's right. They they kind of, they put us to shame. Yeah. So I think that's awesome that you've got some sort of instruction or clear information about mm. about for the dads as well because they're they're look they're looking for it mm. yeah and make no mistake it's not only about taking pressure off the mother um what a lot of dads underestimate is how much better they fare when they are more hands-on mm. you know statistically you are seeing significantly lower rates of paternal postnatal adjustment disorder depression anxiety with a dad who is changing more nappies there's a beautiful study in europe that showed um, a correlation with better mental health um, correlating directly with number of nappies changed Mm. (laughs) being being more hands-on being more involved um, it makes an enormous difference and and doesn't it send a beautiful message to the next generation it really does Actually, I, I, I have to recount, I mean, um, come back on my word because Pat actually used to do a lot of nappies. Not bothered by a nappy ever. There was like, I yeah. couldn't wait till you got home. I was always, like, yeah, I was comfortable yeah. with nappies. I think yes. you know, body, body fluids, you're fine with those. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think that's a professional thing. I wasn't worried about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we touched on the red flags, but now if we go back to what's considered normal but big challenges for parents of newborns, what, what do you think they're mostly challenged by? And you've mentioned sleep already. Um, to be honest, I think the biggest challenge that parents face and report to me is confusion. Mm. And to elaborate on that, there is so much information. It's just, it, it's information overload. Mm. And you And you're getting it at a time when you are least capable of processing information. So you're getting it. Um, two in the morning, a midwife is giving you this piece of advice and you think, oh, that's great. I've got to remember it. But you don't have any short-term memory because you haven't slept in two days. Yeah. And you've got social media telling you things. You've got the older generation telling you, oh, back in my day, we did this and you're doing that wrong and you're not mm. whacking hard enough and no, no, no. My baby slept through the night at four weeks. You know, there's a lot of noise. Mm. And that is um, that is my entire um, philosophy. Mm is not to increase anxiety. I don't want to be yet another noisy voice. I want to be something that cuts through that noise and explain to parents something that I think existed in older generations more than it does now. There is this innate instinct within us as humans that turns on when we become parents. It's not just a maternal instinct. There's a paternal one as well. And it is a voice from within. It's not a, a cliche or a euphemism. It is a very real gut instinct that exists in mammals and in all of us. Unfortunately, it's very hard to hear that voice when it's drowned out by social media, by expectations, by, as I said, um, you know, generational advice, all of these other things that just serve to complicate matters and make parents who previously weren't anxious to make them more anxious, second guess, doubt, question. And so the book is not a baby book. It's a parent book Mm. about upskilling and empowering parents so that when they see something 
they can interpret it. They can know that's something I need to raise or that's something that's normal and I can let it go. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about um, burping? This is mm. this was honestly my favourite part because <laughs> we, we, we had good burpers and I'm glad we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah and excellent we, we, burpers yeah, and fighters. Yeah, and we it's concentrated good, on excellent. the burping and, um, you know, I'd always feed on one side and have the baby up, burp, feed on the other side and have the baby up, burp. Like, and I could, I, I knew when it was time. I could feel the baby relax after they had that burping time. And honestly, we had fabulous sleepers. And I think that was part of that they were never, I don't know, refluxy or colicky or, or whatever people like to term a, an unsettled baby. We didn't have the witching hour as, as such. Um, and, and you didn't have it because they were good burpers. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's probably why you had four. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I was mad. But then again, you know, here we are. So just can you go through your sort of thinking and methodology about people burping their babies? Yeah, I think it comes from um, a couple of places. Firstly, uh, I'm a little bit of a history buff. So I, I like to give, I like to set the scene and explain to people why this is a problem and why our parents didn't have this problem. So um, SIDS awareness was really in a 1980s uh phenomenon and so most of us when we were babies were slept on our stomachs mm. and we've seen a dramatic reduction in the incidence of SIDS which is absolutely brilliant unfortunately we've replaced one problem which there's no, no one's doubting is a fantastic problem to to largely eradicate but we've replaced it with two others and as a result of sleeping babies on their backs we've got a lot more colic really and we've got a lot of plagiocephaly, a lot of flatheads. So these are problems that the older generation didn't have to deal with to the same degree that we do. And that's why a lot of grandparental advice doesn't quite fit. Mm. It's not quite fair because they didn't they slept their babies on their tummies mostly, whereas we sleep ours on, on our backs. Now, if you've got a burp in you, if you've got gas, it is much easier to sleep on your stomach than your back. And a lot of parents will say, I've got a one-month-old, absolutely fine when they're held upright. The moment I lay them down, they scream. Mm. And then they get told, oh, it's because your baby's got reflux. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. It's it's the most common misdiagnosis, and it's really tragic because babies are commenced on medicine they don't need. They're commenced on medicines that have side effects that you don't want. It often makes the original problem worse. And even worse than that, you're, you're stopping to look for the root cause, which means these unsettled babies go on being unsettled and parents just feel like they need to write it out or that this is some horrific rite of passage mm. that you just go through. Um, and it is, it's really tragic, not just because it's an experience that should be so beautiful mm. that people are just wishing away, just hurry up, I want to get to five months, six months already. But also, you've got an unsettled baby. Mm. You know, it's, it's just if it can be avoided, why not? So that's the history, and then I think it's compounded by some of the advice that parents are given on the postnatal ward. So babies are born incredibly insensitive. It's what allows babies to go through a hell of a lot of um, "quote unquote" trauma in the childbirth process. So they get squeezed and they get squashed and they get pulled and yanked. And it's really, um, it's very rough as, as you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the trick is making it look like it's not. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it is. Yeah. While you're pulling someone by their head yeah. using forceps, forceps exactly. It's, it's really, it, yeah. it is really rough. Yeah. It is, and and babies are are um, intentionally born very insensitive to in, to enable them to withstand that. You know, I I mean, at one o'clock this morning, I'll give you an example. Um, we had a, a baby born. Um, I was telling you off air that I was on call. We had a baby born. The baby uh, did not come out in good condition, and amongst other things, I had to put a drip. I had to put an IV with a needle into the baby's hand. That baby did not flinch when yeah, the needle wow. went. So you have to be pretty insensitive to not even notice a needle going mm. into your hand. It's yeah. a very sensitive part of the body, but this baby didn't flinch. And it's just testament to the fact that they're quite insensitive. So in the first few days, uh, perhaps even the first week or two, Babies are insensitive to external stimuli, which is why you can also take them to a loud restaurant or a movie. They'll sleep through it. But they'll also be insensitive to internal stimuli. So wind pain doesn't hurt them that much. And that is why a lot of people say you don't need to burp a baby. Mm. So you can, but you maybe don't really need to burp a newborn newborn because they're not particularly sensitive to it. Okay. And when do you think that kicks in, that that does start to trouble them? I think as early as a week of life. Wow, yeah. But that information, that advice is not upgraded to the next level of advice, (laughs) and it just carries on. And that's why, unfortunately, a lot of people are told, you don't need to burp a baby. It's absolutely wrong. And um, I'm trying very, very hard to to change that way of thinking. Mm. Because there are so many – look, you said before – that um, people think that it's a rite of passage to have an unsettled baby. And like we, both Pat and I are from families, we've both, um, I've got five siblings, so there's there's tons of examples in our family, either side. Um, and there's lots of um, people in our family that have had kids that have been very, very unsettled, non-sleepers. And I just think, wow, that is just such a hard start for your little family and for your relationship to have a baby that screams all the time and can only be settled by driving around the block again and again yeah. and again and again and again. Um, and, yeah, I, so when you say unsettled and then you think burping a baby does help, how, what, what's your advice to people around that? Understand why. Mm. So leaving wind in the stomach makes two problems. There's a problem now and there's a problem later. The problem now is simple uh, physics. Gas takes up space. So if at the end of a feed, the stomach is half full of milk and half full of gas, well, you can't get any more milk in. Mm. And we stop eating based on stretch receptors in our stomach. So when that stomach enlarges, the receptors fire off and say, I'm being stretched, I'm full. That message goes to the brain and we stop eating. What doesn't go to the brain is a message saying what the stomach is full of. Mm. And so gas takes up space, which means we're not getting as much milk in. And that makes perfect sense. The baby can't last very long to the next feed because they don't have enough milk to mm. ride it out. Um, it also can, you know, in, in more severe cases, can be the cause of slow weight gain mm. in some babies. Um, then you've got the later effect because that gas has got to go somewhere it's not just absorbed it has to move through and eventually become a fart and 
when it moves to the large colon, you're talking about an organ that's designed to to um, squeeze on poo, not squeeze on air. Mm. And that's why babies get crampy. They get sore. They bring their legs up. They get uncomfortable. They fart. It's their only form of relief. Mm. But um, it, it causes problems now and it causes problems later. And another thing that I want parents to know about is something called the gastrocolic reflex. So that um, that is a phenomenon whereby when food enters the stomach, the colon, which is many, many miles down route, it starts to contract. And the, the, the concept is essentially, you know, the body's trying to make room for what's just arrived. And so you're most likely um, going to have a bowel action after a main meal, mm. which is where most, most people will go to the bathroom after breakfast or after lunch or after dinner. And with babies, as soon as they start feeding, they start contracting on this gas in the colon and it becomes painful. And if I had a dollar that everything <laughs> is to me, my baby's hungry, I give them a feed and a minute in, they are back arching, they're oh, pulling off, they're yeah. bringing their legs up. That is the gastrocolic reflex. That is telling the parent at the previous feed or even the one before that, there was not enough winding. Yeah, right. Um, and so do you have a favourite technique for winding? Oh, I've got many. Mm. <laughs> and look, that's why, um, uh, you know, every baby's a little bit different, but there are certain techniques that work. And that's why um, people are often surprised that I spend so much time on the online program in the book as well, focusing on winding. Mm. So I tell people, um, if you, if you recognize some of these signs in your baby, um, if there are wind signs, please, please take a look, um, employ the methods and you'll see the difference almost instantly. And some of those signs to look for beyond just the, the pulling of pulling up of the legs and the discomfort early on in the feed, there is nothing that causes grunting in a baby other than wind. Mm. Yeah. Hiccups as well. Mm. Oh, hiccups as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, my favourite, I always knew, uh, thankfully, my babies were very fast burpers because I don't have a lot of patience. But I could, <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine that um, some babies take quite some time. Like everything was fast about, like my milk letdown was massive and fast and they would feed and they'd be done each side in like five minutes flat and then they'd be burping and then like we're done. But there's some babies like, Nothing works that fast. And I can imagine the winding process, people do have to have a little bit more patience over. Yeah, and, and you, do, you do have to invest in it. Mm. Um, a very active method of winding, you do have to invest in it. But what sounds like a lot of work um, is completely nothing when you're sleeping eight hours overnight. Yeah, you beauty. <laughs> That's we it. Don't care. Yeah, that yeah. Is, that we don't cool. care then. Yeah, I, my favourite position was um, basically on the shoulder where the my shoulder was pushing a little bit into their chest and causing their belly, that, yeah. and in their belly, and that was sort of causing a little pressure there. But I'd sometimes get the um, secondary vomit down the back of my top, everybody. Oh, yeah. Like the amount of times Pat would go off to work, I'm like, oh, hang on, <laughs> might have to change <laughs> top here. Am I worried about any vomiting after burping? Um, we just need to, to look at the wording yep. there. Um, a spill of milk that a is posset. effortless and small volume. That's right. Yeah. It's a posset. And um, a vomit is a very different thing. Mm. So a vomit is the forceful ejection of the entire stomach contents associated with um, 
other things, other things being, you know, the shoulders pull up, there's retching, um, you know, there's, there's heaving. It's sorry to be so mm. graphic, uh-huh. but a vomit is a very different thing. And if you've seen a baby posset, you see that they don't even notice it. Yeah. It is an effortless spill. Those effortless spills should be ignored. Mm. I mean, don't ignore them on no, your no. clothes, yeah. but, <laughs> but you don't have to quantify them. You don't have to replace them. In fact, a baby who possets easily is a baby who burps easily. Mm. So I would see it as a wonderful sign in a child. We call them happy spitters. Yeah. Sounds like that's what you had, those mm. babies that bring things up easily. So if you can bring milk up easily, you can bring wind up easily. Mm. And these babies are spitting all over the place but sleeping beautifully overnight. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know it can be a concern. And a lot of people, um, I don't know, they throw away that term reflux. Mm. A lot, like my baby's got reflux. I've got a reflux baby. Um, yep. You said before that you don't like that term. Is that something that you said was um, often overdiagnosed? Um, dangerously so. Mm. I cannot um, emphasize this enough. Uh, reflux is one of the most outstanding examples of drug company advertising to GPs. Mm. Um, and you know what? I, I'm probably I, I might be overstepping here, but you know how there's a massive um, flood of of stories and movies and Netflix shows about the opioid crisis. Yeah, mm. I'm, try- I'm not trying to draw equivalents because that is a, a, a massive tragedy and problem. But I think people are going to talk about reflux in similar ways. And please don't don't think that I'm drawing similarities. But no, we understand. This is something that is grossly overdiagnosed, mm. pushed by uh, pharmaceutical companies who are trying to get these babies on these medicines. Um, reflux in adults, and Dr. Pat, you, you would see this all the time with your patients, reflux in pregnant women as yep. well. It's a very real thing. Um, it makes sense because you've got something kicking on your gut, so mm. it yep. makes sense that you've got reflux, um, and it needs to be treated and you get you get relief. The fact that milk travels upwards, it's like babies have hijacked the word reflux. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It describes the passage of milk going backwards. But despite the fact that it's the same word, it's not the same process and shouldn't have the same treatment. Mm. So, I, for example, I prescribe an anti-reflux medicine. You can imagine how many babies I see a year. I, I would say... This year I've prescribed it once. Oh, um, wow. That was against my will, by the way. <laughs> but on average, I would say twice a year I would prescribe an anti-reflux medicine. It is exceedingly wow. rare. You know, Gosh. true reflux, these babies are failing to gain weight and vomiting blood. Yeah. That's mm. true reflux. That, that gets my attention. Um, babies who spit up a lot but who are happy, they don't have reflux. You've got a happy spitter. That's wonderful. Mm. Don't mm. treat that because you'll create problems, not only by restricting the amount of wind you can get out, but um, these medicines that are used for reflux, they, they've got side of very real side effects that mm. we just we don't want to be exposing babies to. Yeah. Okay. I'm learning tons here. Good. I, 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 I'm, <laughs> we had a few people, of our own. I'm not sure why no, you didn't learn it along uh, the way. <laughs> no, I, just, I think we're just learning how little I know about pediatrics after the babies come out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You often say that. <laughs> um, when, when you mentioned before uh, about birth 
uh, weight charts, birth height and weight charts. Mm. And they are such a source of stress for, I think, everybody. Like your baby's either um, in the 97th centile or fallen off the charts or it is a really stressful time. Every time you go to your maternal health nurse and, and you think, oh, my God, has my baby put on 300 grams or 400 grams? What do you think about those charts? Um, I guess it's the sensitivity specificity debate. You know, mm-hmm. um, you've got each um, test or, or measure in in science has either sensitive or specific. So, when it comes to newborns, we don't want to miss anyone who might be um, uh, in danger, and so we are extremely sensitive to babies, and therefore, unfortunately. We overcall and we tend to create, not we, but um, those charts tend to create a lot of angst and a lot of worry in in parents. Um, I, I can safely say that there is no doubt in my mind that the vast majority of referrals that I see, um, babies say under two months of age, ha- have been, you know, come in terrified about something from the chart, whether it's head circumference, it's usually weight. Um, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that baby. Mm. Um, the saddest one is where there's clearly an error in the scale. Oh, wow. Ah. I hate that because I just feel like they've, you know, yeah. spent all this time worrying for no reason. It's just so silly. Um, that's just frustrating. Mm. So, so I do say, to, you know, to, to parents, if you get an alarming result, just grab another scale. Make sure it's not, you know, measurement error or a scale that's running low in batteries or whatever it may be. Um, but I think the the most common, you know, it's wonderful to, because you can, you can pick up babies who are failing to thrive, who are not gaining weight. That is good. Um, but in terms of being a source of anxiety, the most common um, anxious presentation that I get is the baby who's dropping centiles, gaining weight, but dropping centiles. Mm. And um Commonly, I'll examine that baby. Baby will be fine. There'll be no issues, no issues with supply, no issues at all. Um, All tests completely normal. And what we're witnessing is what I call a weight correction. Mm. And I try to explain it to parents that, you know, when Dr. Pat's looking after the baby, when they're in utero, that baby's growth is determined by the health of the placenta, by the health of the cord, by mum's blood sugar levels. There are so many factors, but most importantly, it's got nothing to do with the baby. Mm. The baby has no say. They're not ordering more or less. They just get what they're given. Get what they're given, exactly. And then the baby arrives with a birth weight that is not determined by them. So I give the example of a a small couple, you know, a couple who themselves are um, on the 10th centile, totally healthy couple, and mum's got gestational diabetes for whatever reason. And so her blood sugar levels are a little bit high and therefore the baby's getting pumped with a lot of sugar. And so the baby's born in the 90th centile. Pat, you would have seen this a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. And this is the level of nuance you need to have to say, yeah. you know, this is a good baby for you. Correct. Yeah. So that baby that was born on the 90th centile for factors completely unrelated to the baby has got to make its way to its genetically predetermined centile, which based on the parents is probably also going to be on the 10th centile. Mm. Over the first couple of months, that baby's going to gain weight, but drop centiles from 90 to 10. That's a completely healthy, normal baby. 
and unfortunately, sometimes terrified parents. Yeah. So weight corrections are really common. Um, I never want parents to dismiss a, a major change in centiles, but in the setting of a healthy baby who's feeding well, and if you can make sense of the content context, i.e. parents are small, baby should be small. Mm. Yes. Um, our first, he, he actually did um, drop centiles. Um, and if I look at him now, past the, he actually fell off the charts at one point, and we did see a paediatrician for that and, and at, at Cabrini. Um, and that paediatrician said, look, you know, these babies, they, exactly that, they get what they're given. Um, it's not that he's starving himself. Uh, everything else is healthy and normal. And we look at him now and he's six foot two or something, but as skinny as a pole. Like he's, he has, I don't know where he's come from, but <laughs> he doesn't have any, um, any um, very lean. He's super lean. So yeah, I think that's just him as a baby, but it was very, very stressful for me. Yeah, because yeah, you just don't know um, when the maternal child health nurse says, "I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to worry you, but um, according to our charts, your baby's malnourished." And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure what worries me in that sentence. Um, <laughs> quite a lot, actually. <laughs> Who would be worried yeah, by that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, so when we have uh, talked about uh, feeding before, and we're very uh, non-judgmental, everything that we try to do is is about having no judgment. It's what that person can do. But I just wanted from a paediatrician whether you could talk about whether bottle or breast or if someone is deciding to bottle feed and not breastfeed, what, what's a paediatrician's take on that? Feed the baby. <laughs> yeah, just feed the baby. I don't know that, we, that anything else needs to be said beyond that. Um, I'm in the business of reducing parental anxiety mm. and I am – um, vehemently opposed to any practice, commentary, judgment, criticism that serves to make uh, mothers and fathers feel bad. Um, if a, you know, I think it should be um, compulsory education for all pregnant women to be told that not every mother and baby are a perfect match nipple and mouth mm. and palate to be able to breastfeed without issue. Um, it's a wonderful thing when it happens, but it doesn't happen all the time. And it doesn't reflect a problem with the mother or the baby necessarily. It's just that sometimes it doesn't work. And maybe it's about supply and maybe it's about palate and maybe it's about, uh, you know, there are a thousand possible reasons as to why it may not just be this seamless, lovely um, honeymoon style, uh, you know, Instagram worthy mm. yeah. breastfeeding relationship. It doesn't always happen. And I think the more people um, go into this realm knowing that, the less hard they will be on themselves. Mm. Yeah. I might, I might be dreaming, but I, I, I reckon there might have been a change in the last perhaps five years. Mm. A bit less guilt. A bit less guilt about whether they can breastfeed or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. I hope that's true too. I'm, that's a no. I've got no evidence for that. I just it's a, it's a gut feeling that things might be changing in the direction of some common sense about that. Yeah. Well, that would be I good. Really hope mm. so. I still think we've got a far way to go. Oh yeah. But I hope, I hope that's true. And if you did formula feed, are all formulas made equal? It's such a 
tightly regulated industry, there's very little difference from one to the other mm. um, in our country. Um, you know, when people say, what formula do I use? I, I say something you can get your hands on easily that's not going to be in short supply, that's not terribly expensive, um, is always my advice. And then if your baby is telling you uh, that they aren't tolerating that formula, either because of worsening of eczema, um, allergy, it might be, uh, you know, a milk protein intolerance, for example, then you change the formula. Um, but, you know, using formula is is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and mixed feeding is not a bad thing. In fact, there are many benefits to to mixed feeding. So I just, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be challenged by anyone who, um, who disagrees with me on this because uh, I just people need to understand that the single most important person is the mum, mm. and mums are very very poor at putting themselves first, mm. and that's the big change that needs to happen. Yeah. yeah, I remember feeling intense shame when he's now twenty, our first boy. I used a dummy mm. because it was there was a lot of mother guilt around dummies. I remember hiding them and everything. By the time the fourth came along, I couldn't care less what other people felt and thought. Oh, but we had like six. Yeah. We, uh, per yeah, baby. Per, per baby. Like, you know, and um, I just worked out of the four, there were two that really needed a dummy and the other yeah. two could take or leave it. So it's like, well, I can see that there's a real benefit for my two that had their dummies. They loved their dummy. It gave them so much comfort and so much satisfaction. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you have a thought on dummy use? Yeah, I com- agree with you completely. There are some babies that are what I call orocentric. They like, um, there's a lot of focus on their mouth. They like to suck. Often parents report they were sucking on their thumb in the womb mm. even. And if sucking is soothing, then I've got no problem with that at all. Mm. I'm, I'm like you, my first, well, my first um Loved her thumb. My second, no interest. My third, obsessed with dummies. Mm. And I think, um, you know, the take-home message that I want people to to um, to learn is: listen to your baby. Mm. If they're telling you they want to suck on a dummy, don't deny it. And if they're telling you that they're not particularly interested, don't introduce it. Yeah. Love yeah. It. All right. I would like to ask one more question. You got time for one more question? Absolutely. All right. Have you got any more uh, questions? Oh, 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 you go first. Yeah. All right. My question is that did becoming a dad change your practice as a paediatrician? Oh, that was my question. Oh, <laughs> jinx. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted when I when we had children, I wanted to go back to all the patients that I'd seen before and go. Uh, can I answer that again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, I. Hopefully, I didn't give wrong advice, but I. I'm sure I didn't know truly what they were asking mm. um, until you've been through it. Yeah, yeah, I, I could not agree more, Dr. Pat. I had the exact same thing. And, you know, to answer your question in one word, um, immeasurably. Mm. There is this joke amongst training paediatricians that the best way to study for your exam is just to have a baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there is, I, I mean, Wow. To say that it changed my practice is grossly inadequate. When my daughter arrived, it changed my life in every possible way. Um, now you're going to get me all emotional. Mm. I um, 
I was training to become a pediatric cardiologist when my daughter was born. Um, and she was the most horribly unsettled, miserable, mm. unhappy baby. And I hated it. And I'm not afraid to say it. I absolutely hated being a dad. I hated everything, not everything. I hated a lot about it. Um, I was in the public health system. I got, I think, five days off. Um, my wife had a 48-hour labor, so two of those days were chewed up by labor. So mm. I was back at work um, in an emergency ward doing night shifts when my el- when my firstborn was three days old. Wow. Yeah. Three days after getting home, sorry. Um, it was I, I was miserable. Um, I don't remember half of it. She was so unsettled. And here I am, this pediatrician, um, desperately wanting to be a dad, um, pressure that I put on myself, pressure that I um, perceived from my family. I've got two older brothers, lots of nieces and nephews. Um, you know, I, sh- I should have been the best. Mm. <laughs> and, and I felt like I was the worst. I felt like I was letting my wife down. I felt like I was letting my daughter down more than anything. And I went into a deep, dark hole and I hated it because I couldn't fix it. Part of that was me being a, a you know, Mr. Fix-It man. Part of it was me being someone who'd have always been able to fix things and achieve things and put my mind to something and do it. I couldn't fix this. And through a lot of hard work, a lot of input, a lot of taking this advice, not taking that advice, learning, taking, doing a deep dive into this area of unsettled babies, which was largely untouched. You know, mm. we were told, as I said before, by pediatricians, she'll grow out of it. You'll get through it. It's, yeah, oh, yeah, mine did the same. All of this, you know, it's, Dr. Pat, it's the same, you know, when you tell mums, morning sickness will pass at 12 weeks. <laughs> yeah. And then at 14 weeks, oh, no, no, 16 weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, sometimes it goes yeah. longer. But, yeah, the, the um, everybody goes through this is inadequate. It, 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 we need, yeah. we need, yes, it's normal. This is not a disease. However, there are some useful treatments and there are some yeah. uh, evidence-based solutions and here they That's are. That's right. Yeah. And so, so as a result of our experience with, our firstborn, I left pediatric cardiology. I went to general pediatrics and purely because of, of, and I'm not using that word loosely, the trauma that we went through Mm. as a young couple um, pushed me down this road. And, you know, it was the worst time of my life and the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So I have, uh, you know, endless amounts of empathy for these parents. I tell my secretary every day, if someone calls with an unsettled baby, um, you you make time mm. to get them in. I don't care how busy I am. I will see them and I'll see them ASAP because I know what it's like. Um, you know, you can't wait another day. You can't wait another week. You can't wait two months. It is a, a well-recognized form of torture. Mm. And, um, and that's why I love being able to do what I do and, and, give people the gift of being able to actually enjoy this period because there's mm. so much to enjoy. Yeah. And, yeah. And thankfully with our second and with our third, we were able to see a little bit more light and mm. see the enjoyment and, um, and completely change the experience. Yeah. 
your firstborn, do you think it was parental inexperience or were, were there issues why she was unsettled? No, uh, she had colic. Just, yeah. She had colic because she couldn't burp. Yeah. There was nothing wrong with her. Mm. We were blessed like that. She had no eczema. She had no medical problems. She was a fatty. She, you know, mm. my wife was an absolute magician with breastfeeding. You know, there were no problems at all. And no one could explain why she was so deeply unsettled. Mm. Um, and and I, I couldn't accept that. Mm. Well, I, thank God you didn't. I know. Right? Yeah. So I, I love the fact that you turned that undoubtedly traumatic experience into a career in general practice, uh, general uh, pediatrics, um, by the way, fantastic. And also, um, uh, you know, writing this book. Mm. And, we, we, you know, we're grateful that you did. And also we're grateful for the humanity and kindness that's that's in it mm. yeah and it's like you said you can't really know what it's like unless you've experienced it yourself mm. yeah well that, that comes through yeah um how do people get it um it's available in um in most good bookstores big w target um or online is probably the easiest through uh booktopia excellent beautiful that's yeah. really great. Um, and then for listeners who have enjoyed this podcast, I um, I urge you to check out Dr. Golly's sleep program. We didn't even touch on sleep. Um, <laughs> You'll have to come back. That's a whole other topic. But, yeah, so just about sleep expectations. And I think they go from, um, uh, was it six weeks on? Is that the first time that your age-specific programs? When's the first um, sleep? Oh, look, it starts from birth. Birth, much okay. Like- much like the book, yep. Um, but then you know, I don't really talk about um, routines per se until that five or six week mark, and I and I have um, certain targets. Yeah. So, like a six week old who weighs five kilos to be sleeping through the night. Yeah, right. Um, and then you know, a five month old who's on a decent amount of solids to be to be going twelve hours. Yeah, those right. are my targets, and then it's all about troubleshooting, removing the hurdles in the way. Um, a lot of education, a lot of dispelling myths, mm. and then um, setting up for success. Yeah, great. I would like to look at those programs too, because they, they, I mean, sleep training culture is something different, and I think that 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 often is another area of a lot of expectation and parental stress. Um, it's whatever is suiting your family and household. Uh, yeah, but we do we do need that support and um, help. So if anyone's struggling with their baby sleeping right now and everybody's just put their hands straight up, I bet, uh, <laughs> check out Dr. Golly's sleep programs online. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. It's been just a really peaceful, lovely chat. No, it's my pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me. We've really appreciated you uh, coming on. It's been fantastic. Thanks a lot. No worries. All right, bye for now. Bye.